Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. It fizzes. It pops. Just the word signals a celebration. And it was the favorite drink of the elite in the Gilded Age and the Belle Epoque. The exuberant, vivacious music of Offenbach and Johann Strauss and the waltzes of Franz Lehár all seemed to be fueled by its popping corks and frothing bubbles. And even today, opening a bottle of it just means something special and announces important gatherings, no matter how large or small. It is, of course... Champagne, the world's most elegant drink. But there's a lot more to champagne in its history that lies below its surface effervescence. Today, my return guest Don Spiro and I will take a look at the history of champagne and, as we did with absinthe, analyze some of the misconceptions and set the record straight. For this show, I recommend you skip our usual cup of tea and find your best champagne glasses and join us in this truly sparkling story. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a look beneath the glitter and the gold of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. As we get close to the end of 2022, it's time to look forward to a new year. So join me for a celebration. The night they invented champagne. It's plain as it can be, they thought of you and me The night they invented champagne They absolutely knew that all we'd want to do Is fly to the sky on champagne And shout to everyone in sight That since the world began, no woman or man Has ever been as happy as we are Tonight in the much-loved musical film Gigi, Gigi, her grandmother, and Gaston, played so memorably by Leslie Caron, Hermione Gingold, and Louis Jordan, sing the praises of Champagne. In this infectious, bubbling song, lyricist Alan J. Lerner and composer Frederick Lowe brilliantly capture the excitement and the abandon that can come with the seemingly limitless potential after a glass or two of Champagne. 
Let us not forget the feeling of potential romance whenever and wherever a bottle is opened. And it's the traditional drink to ring in a whole new year as we are just about to do. I am joined for today's episode by Don Spiro, who listeners will remember as my guest for my episode on the mysteries of absinthe, a far more scandalous and misunderstood drink of the Gilded Age and Belle Epoque. But today, despite its natural fizz, champagne takes a bit of explanation to understand its history, to understand how it's made, and how to really taste it, and understand just how different it is in modern times from those glasses downed by Oscar Wilde and Marcel Proust, served alongside the golden place settings at Mrs. Astor's dinner parties, and enjoyed by all the Louis and their mistresses at the tables of Versailles. Don Spiro is the curator and host of New York's own Green Fairy Society, a monthly absinthe tasting salon in Manhattan's East Village. Don worked in the media and television world of Los Angeles before relocating back to the East Coast and began promoting vintage-style cocktail-themed performance events. He is the editor of Zelda Magazine, a publication dedicated to jazz age arts and lifestyle. Don knows champagne firsthand, having worked at Flute, one of New York's most well-known and influential champagne bars. Don, welcome back to The Gilded Gentleman. I am so glad you're here. Thank you very much, Carl. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here on a whole new subject. So it's exciting that we get to talk about one of the world's most famous drinks that doesn't quite have that dark history and all the connotations of absinthe, but instead is really about celebration and excitement in a good way and romance, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. It's all of these things uh, and more. I would say it's not just about celebration. I would say that it's something, and this is something I learned working at Flute, it's something you can have every day. You can have it for breakfast or lunch or dinner, not just when things are going well, but when things are going bad or when things are going mediocre or when you just want to have a glass of champagne. Well, I think with this show, we can start a new trend of champagne for breakfast, right? We cleared up so many misconceptions in our show on absinthe, and I think there are certainly some around champagne as well. So let's just start at the beginning. So Don, can you define just exactly what we're talking about when we say champagne as opposed to sparkling wine? Oh, absolutely. Well, there are a lot of sparkling wines, of course. There's uh, Champagne, Cava, Prosecco, Asti. All are sparkling wines, but Champagne is not just a sparkling wine. Champagne is made under what the French have as an appellation. Uh, It's something that defines the regional standards for things in France, uh, all different kinds of products like, like wines and cheeses. And it's set by the government. And in the case of Champagne, it's defined also by the winemakers. Now, for a long time, all sparkling wine was called champagne until the winemakers in France decided to protect the name. The Madrid Agreement of 1891 established trademark rules for all of Europe, and that was reaffirmed by the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 after World War I, and that defined what champagne was. So champagne is defined by a geographical region, the Champagne region of France, the grape varieties, and the method of production, which is uh, the Champagne method. So first, the region. It must be made in the Champagne region of France. Sparkling wine in this region goes back to the early 1500s. 
and it must be made by certain grapes. So the three main grapes are Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. So there's four other grapes that are allowed. Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Petit Meslier, and Arbain. And it must be made by the champagne method. That means the grapes are fermented, then they're blended together, sometimes with stocks of reserve wines. That's wines from other years that they've staved. And bottled with the liqueur de tourage, that is wine, yeast, and sugar, add it to the bottle to provide a second fermentation within the bottle. That's what gives it uh, all its bubbles. Now, in addition to this, it may or may not have what they call liqueur de dosage, also known as liqueur de expedition, which is even more sugar added to it. The, the grapes tend to be slightly acidic, so to balance it out and make it sweeter, they add more sugar. And then it has to be aged for at least 15 months. So Don, so Champagne is actually a place. And when we talk about wine, and certainly even you had mentioned cheese a few minutes ago, it's this notion which I think is so important of terroir. Can you talk about what terroir is? Because it's it's not just the earth, it's actually weather too. Can you talk about what that really means? Yeah, terroir refers to the natural environmental factors that affect the character of the wine or or the cheese or chocolate or, or coffee for that matter, whatever you have. This means that the soil, the topography, uh, irrigation, the elevation, all of it is all part of the terroir. So that means that grapes grown on one side of the street will not necessarily taste the same as grapes grown on the other side of the street, right? That is absolutely true. I don't have a fine enough palate to necessarily notice the difference, but I do know people who do. And the reason is, is because of the weather, because how much sunlight something gets, uh, what is underneath the soil could be different, could be drastically different from one side, you know, one vineyard to another. Now, can you talk a little bit about what this geography, can you first of all explain for listeners where exactly the Champagne region is in France and what is unique about the soil, the weather, all of those factors of the Champagne region that give the drink its special qualities? Well, Champagne is a region in northern France, so it's in a colder part of France. And like I said, the climate is an important part of the terroir. Uh, grapes need a certain amount of sunlight and the yeast for fermentation is growing at best at uh, certain temperatures. The frost or drought and everything can affect the harvest. And that's what separates Champagne terroir from other sparkling wines. So it's in the north of France, meaning it's got a generally cooler temperature, but cool all year round, around 50 degrees. It gets a lot of rain there. And the subsoil is limestone in that area. Uh, something it shares actually with Southern England and particularly chalk, which is tough on the vines, but provides a great reservoir for the water. And that's what gives some of the champagnes a bit of a mineral flavor. So why then are the wines from Champagne so world famous? Is it just the taste as a combination of, of all of those factors? Or does it have something to do with their long history? What makes the grapes and champagne produce such delicious wine. It's actually both of those things. It's both the taste and it's the history. The taste of champagne uh, has a wide range. It can be anything from citrusy to fruity, depending on the, the blend of the grapes. It can be yeasty or floral, have uh, acid notes or mineral notes. And there's a champagne for everyone. That's one of the great things about champagne. 
Also, the texture is unique because of the bubbles. You have bubbles of different sizes. But the history is, is the thing that's really interesting to me. For centuries, it was a tradition for the French kings to be crowned in the Champagne region, in the Cathedral of Reims. And they used the local wine to celebrate. So they were always using Champagne. This is back when Champagne was still a pink-colored still wine. It wasn't, wasn't sparkling. It was the early days of Champagne. And it wasn't so much a beverage to be savored like we have today. It was a, a celebration beverage. You would drink it like a, a shot or use it for a toast. So maybe more of an everyday drink that you were talking about at the beginning of the show? Very much so. It wasn't the only sparkling beverage they had at the time. They also had uh, ciders and beers. But as usual, the real reason for champagne's popularity, as always with anything, is marketing. And in the early 19th century, it was marketed to the royals, to the nobility of Europe. It was a luxury item due to its being very rare. And it was preferred by the nobility and the wealthy. And once they liked it, the market expanded as an affordable luxury for the European wealthy middle class. And by the turn of the 20th century, it was the middle class that was drinking most of the champagne. In 1800, the Champagne region was producing 300,000 bottles of champagne every year. By 1853, it was producing 10 million bottles of champagne per year. And the marketing was was just amazing back then. Um, one of my favorite stories is of a guy named Eugene Mercier. He had a champagne house, and his story is one of the most fantastic, I think. He wanted to have a consistency to his wine, and he thought one of the best ways to have all his bottles consistent was to put all his wine in one giant barrel to age it. It took him 170 oaks and 16 years to make this barrel, and it was called Mercer's Cathedral of Champagne. It was finished in 1887. Two years later, he tore down the wall of his cellar so that he could transport this barrel by horse cart and oxen from Epernay to Paris for the 1889 Exposition uh, Universelle. It's like the World uh, Expo. And when turns got to be too tight in some of the towns he was going through, he had to buy the houses and tear down their corners so the ox cart could pull this gigantic barrel all the way to Paris. And it's still one of the best-selling wines in France. I call that a very dedicated champagne maker <laughs> right there. Uh, what a wonderful story. Now, Don, we really have to do some myth-busting here because let's go back into the history because there are a lot of layers of this. So let's talk about the origin story a little bit here. So there is this very famous story about the monk Dom Perignon, who is said to have invented champagne by accident and then ran around saying that he was seeing stars after drinking it. So Don, you are so good at myth-busting here. Can you please set us all straight here and talk about how champagne really did come into being? And it was sort of an accident, right? Well, actually, I'm going to say it was not an accident because in truth, it just didn't happen. Drinking the Stars, that quote came out of, I think, a Victorian ad and became really popular after 1936, when Mouet and Chandon put out their brand named after Dom Perignon. He didn't invent champagne. Actually, sparkling wine was already occurring in the Champagne region of France, naturally. Uh, there was the Little Ice Age at the time. People forget about that. Weather got colder and the fermentation would stop early and they would bottle it. And as the weather warmed up, the yeast would reactivate and the fermentation would start again. And that's why you got the bubbles in, in the bottles. And sometimes it got to be too much and the bottles would explode. So he was actually hired by the Abbey 
to try to make a better still wine, try to get the sparkling out of the champagne. And uh, he did a lot of other things also, but um, that was why he was really hired. Uh, he didn't invent it at all. But this idea of the bubbles, that was kind of a surprise, right? They didn't expect that when all of a sudden in the spring they had sparkling wine. That is true, but that happened uh, probably a few hundred years before Dom Perignon. What would happen is this would just happen naturally. And at the time, in the 1600s, I'll say, at the time of Dom Perignon, the French didn't like it sparkling. They preferred red, fruitier wines, and they would travel through the Champagne region to go to other regions to get the wine. So Dom Perignon was a Benedictine monk whose job at Hovillet Abbey was to improve the still wines that they had and keep the bottles from exploding. So sellers would sometimes lose as much as half of their product, and that was not something they really wanted to do. The people who worked in the cellars would wear mesh metal masks, kind of like fancy masks, so they wouldn't lose their eyes. And what Dom Perignon did is he cultivated and improved the wines, found the best way to prune the vines, the best times to harvest them, the best way to press them and to blend them. It's possible he did focus on bubbles after taste changed, but the reason he was originally in charge of the vineyard is to eliminate the bubbles. So that's really interesting. So the process of making champagne has gone on long before him, but it sounds like he was really the first one that really started to refine it into an art and look at it every from every aspect, whether it was how the vines were prepared to how the bubbles were handled to what was going on. Is that is that an accurate assessment of what our good friend Dom actually did? Yes, he actually did improve the wines of the region just by choosing the grape varieties. The grape varieties that are in Champagne today were chosen by Dom Perignon. He had somebody helping him, uh, another monk named Ruinart. And he's one of the three, I'd say, monks of the time who are known for defining what Champagne is today. Dom Perignon is definitely major, major influence. He did not invent Champagne, but today's Champagne has a lot to thank Dom Perignon for. Now, I've also read that the British got into this here, and the British, but I was very surprised to, to read about this, the British actually had a hand, a great hand, in improving the production of Champagne. Can you talk about that? What was going on across the channel? So, like I said, prior to Dom Perignon, the French were going through Champagne to other regions to get the red wines because they didn't really care for the wine that was coming from Champagne. Now, Charles de saint Vermont, he was a French expatriate living in England in the court of Charles II. He enjoyed wine from Champagne. He's the one who brought Champagne to the English court. And my guess, I've never read this, but my guess is one of the reasons why they imported Champagne from France to England is because it was the cheaper wine from France that the French didn't want it. Now, England did not have the problem of the exploding wine bottles that all the French did. And the reason is because when wine was shipped back then, it was shipped in barrels. So it made its way across the channel in barrels, and then the English bottled it themselves. By the 1600s, the English had developed really strong wine bottles that could withstand the pressure of the bubbles of champagne and the sparkling wine. In 1630, Sir Kenelm Digby developed a glass with a string rim. That's the enlarged section around the neck of a uh, champagne bottle. And that could be used for twine to hold the cork in place to keep it from popping out. Cork had been used actually to stop bottles since Roman times. 
So scientist Christopher Merritt presented the first record of this second fermentation to the Royal Society in England in 1662. And the poet Samuel Butler the next year described champagne as brisk. And champagne was in the Duke of Bedford's list of household inventory in 1665. This is years before Dom Perignon took over his vineyard. So it became known as the English method or the English style at the time. So these exploding bottles that we have back in France, this is really to do with inferior glass production and inferior bottle manufacturing, correct? That it sounds like the British got a hold of. How did the French start making better bottles? Oh, well, the French didn't start making better bottles until there was a taste for sparkling wine. What happened was taste changed in France. Eventually in France, people started liking the sparkling wine. So they started making bottles the English style or importing English bottles so that the wine would not explode. It just became a matter of there being enough demand for the bottles being better. I just, ever since I heard the story of the exploding bottles years ago, I've just always been worried about that. So my listener is not to fear. I think we're all quite safe these days. But Don, we really do think of champagne as the most elegant drink for celebrations, and we tend to associate it with wealth and power and prestige. But it seems like that all comes down to something you mentioned very early on, which was this marketing, this early marketing in the French court around the time of Louis XV or so. Can you talk about what was going on and how champagne was marketed in the French court and what the result of that was? Sure. Actually, it was Louis' uncle, the Duke of Orleans, who brought Champagne to the court in Paris. Now, he took over the regency in 1715 because everybody everybody associates it with Louis. Louis was only five years old. So it was the Duke of Orleans who had this love of Champagne, and he's the reason why the region abandoned still wines and started making all of their wine sparkling. Now, wine was shipped in barrels at the time. The reason for that was for tax purposes. It was much easier to count a barrel of wine than several, you know, dozen or hundreds of bottles individually. But 1728, the Royal Council authorized winemakers to ship in bottles because there was the taste for it. It made it more difficult for the tax collectors, but it meant that wine could be shipped in champagne bottles in France, and that the French could get sparkling wine just like the English did. It was very popular at court, and Louis was the king until 1774, almost 60 years. So he was a major influence on all the royal courts for decades all through Europe. And of course, only the rich could afford things like ice. Champagne was drunk shilled, and ice houses and ice shipments didn't really become popular until 100 years later in the 1850s. So in doing some reading, I was really surprised to see that many, if not most of the major champagne houses actually had their origins back in the 18th century. Can you talk about a few of those, Don? And I'm curious how they got started and how they built their businesses as champagne became more popular. Well, much like today, most of them actually didn't have vineyards. They weren't the grape growers. They were the merchants who bought the grapes from other people. Now, 
I had mentioned a monk named Ruinart who had been helping Dom Perignon to perfect champagne. His nephew was a wine merchant, and he founded the oldest existing champagne house in 1729, uh, a year after the Royal Council decreed you could make it in bottles. So he worked pretty quickly. And Ruinart is something that we sold quite a bit of when I was working at Flute. It's actually in some of the older style bottles. It's slightly different champagne shape. Soon after, Tattinger was founded in 1734 by merchant Jacques Furneaux, it was his house. And then merchant Pierre Tattinger bought it in 1932 and renamed it after himself. Claude Monet, though, was a Dutch vintner. He was a vintner and a merchant. And he founded Mouet and Company in 1743. He was close with Madame Pompadour. And he was the one reason why Mouet was the favored champagne of the court of Versailles. Eventually, that became Mouet and Chandon. And today it lives on as a conglomerate, uh, LVMH, which if uh, you're into fashion, stands for Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy, and they own just about everything. So uh, another one that I really like is a textile merchant. His name was Philippe Glicot, and he started a wine business in 1772 as a side project, and he left the business to his son, Francois. Now, when his son died in 1805, Clicquot was going to liquidate the company. But his daughter-in-law, Francois's widow, convinced him that she could run it. Uh, he made her take an apprenticeship first. Veuve, by the way, means widow in French. She's widow Clicquot. And she took it over in 1810 as Veuve Clicquot-Pansardin. was her maiden name. Then in 1813, she did something that was smart. Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, the company was really in trouble. Uh, the Russians were occupying Champagne and looting all the vineyards. Well, Vuvclicot leaned into it. She gave her Vuvclicot Champagne to the Russians for free. And when Napoleon took the region back, she did the same thing for his soldiers. As soon as Napoleon was defeated, she sent a huge shipment to Russia before anyone else could. And the Russian court declared it was the only Champagne they would drink. Well, that must have been good for marketing, right? So a few years ago, there was this wonderful book published about the story of La Veuve Clicquot, the widow of Clicquot, who really had an interesting story. And she played a really pretty important role in the marketing of Champagne. So Don, can you share a little bit about that story and talk about La Veuve and what she actually did? In 1810, Veuve Clicquot produced a champagne using only grapes that were harvested in that year. That was the first bottling of what we now call vintage champagne. And the next year, in 1811, there was a comet. So she bottled that vintage and called it Comet Wine. It was really good marketing. And Mouet and Chandon, who were her rivals, also came out with a vintage in 1840. And soon after that, it was a fad. But my favorite story about Veuve Clicquot uh, also involves Mouet and Chandon. In 1866, there was a singer named George Laybourne, and he had co-written a song called Champagne Charlie. He would go on stage with a top hat, drinking a bottle of champagne, singing a song that was about aristocrats and drinking champagne. And it was so popular that Laybourne became known as Champagne Charlie, and Mouet and Chandon sponsored him. So not to be outdone, in response, Veuve Clicquot sponsored Alfred Peck Stevens, who was known as the Great Vance on stage. And he arrived at concerts in a carriage with horsemen dressed in their full livery. And he sang a song called Clicquot, Clicquot, That's the Wine for Me. In response to that, in 1869, Champagne Charlie came out with another song called Mouet and Chandon, the sequel to Champagne Charlie. So it sounds like all this singing about champagne in musicals probably fueled the sale of, of champagne in theaters and musicals. Am I right about that? 
Absolutely, especially because champagne in Europe and in England was drunk for celebration and as a dessert almost. It wasn't drunk like we drink it in America today. It was definitely that kind of thing that people wanted. They wanted something that was the best and not just in music halls. There's an anecdote in the old Waldorf Astoria hotel book, uh, cocktail book, about how there were miners coming from the West Coast, I think California or Washington, uh, to the hotel, and they wanted the best there was to drink, which meant they wanted champagne. Well, with that, Don and I are going to take a short break, and we will be right back. And that's just enough time to fill up your glasses. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today, Don Spiro and I are getting a much better understanding of the world's most elegant drink, champagne. So, Don, here's perhaps another myth here is that, uh, and you talked a little bit about this earlier on, but I want to go into more detail here, that champagne is actually made from white grapes, since it's white, right? But that's actually not necessarily true. Am I correct about that? And I think the answer may surprise some people. Yeah, that's not necessarily true. Uh, Because for red wines, what happens is the grapes are macerated in the juice, skins and all. And that's where it gets the, the colors from. So if you have red grapes and you macerate them in the juice, before you ferment them, the juice becomes red. Now for white wines, they're not macerated. So they're just pressed and you get a clear juice and then you ferment it. So you can use any color of grape if you're making a white wine because you're not doing the maceration part. And the three main grapes, as I said, in Champagne are Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. Both of those are red grapes. And then there's Chardonnay, which is a white grape. So you have all those three plus you know, maybe a few others. And you're always going to get your sparkling white wine. Now, One thing a lot of people don't know is that if you have something called a Blanc de Blanc, a white from white, that just means that it's made from white grapes, all white grapes. For example, if it's 100% Chardonnay champagne made from the Chardonnay grapes, it's a Blanc de Blanc. If it's 100% made from a Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier or a blend of those, it's a Blanc de Noir. And if it's a Rosé, it's generally because there's been some red still wine that's been add it to the champagne later. That's something actually that was a technique pioneered by Veuve Clicquot. Now, you and I were chatting the other day about this, and if I have this correct, some of the earlier versions of champagne actually were a little pinky, right? Am I right about that? Absolutely. Not only were they pink, but they were still wines, meaning they were not sparkling. And you could get red and white and pink still wine from champagne all up through the 19th century. Now, let's talk about the 19th century, particularly the end of the 19th century. And I want to focus on 
taste because it seems to me that the early champagne, certainly up through the 19th century, really had a different taste than what we think of today. Can you talk about that? For example, if I drank a glass of champagne at a great Gilded Age dinner party, what would that have tasted like versus what one could go out and have tonight? So in continental Europe at the time, champagne was very sweet, and it was drunk as a dessert wine instead of at meals. Russians preferred it even sweeter than the French. Now we designate sugar content as either dry or sweet, but back then they used to designate it by countries. So the Russian taste was very heavy on sugar, between 200 and 300 grams per liter, and then the French was next, a little less sweet, but still very sweet, 165 to 200 grams. And the American taste was 110 to 165 grams. And in addition, in America, champagne could refer to any sparkling wine. So there's ads from the 1800s that use the phrase imported and domestic champagne. Uh, I was reading that in 1900, there was a steamship on the Hudson. Uh, the New York ship Saratoga that had a menu of nine imported champagnes and two domestic. Now, I said Europeans drank it for dessert, but Gilded Age Americans, we drank it for dinner. And Mamie Fish, who you may have heard of. We she love was, Mamie Fish. Yeah, Mrs. Stuyvesant, Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish. Yes. Uh, she would throw parties with Harry Lair. And she preferred serving champagne to wine, believing wine made her guests too sleepy. At a high society costume ball hosted by the Bradley Martins at the Waldorf Hotel, they ordered 50 cases of Moet and Chandon at $50 a case, 10 bottles of Moet and Chandon, White Star, four bottles of Roy Brut. But they did drink champagne slightly differently than, than the Europeans. In the Cocktails book by Jacques Straub in 1914, he describes serving it with the last meat course of dinner to avoid excessive belching between courses. Uh, he also instructs that waiters should hold it with a napkin so that their hands don't make it uh, you know, warmer. And of course, champagne back then should be served chilled, as today. Harry Johnson's bartender manual, one of the great bartender manuals of the time, described how bartenders should store, chill, serve bottles of champagne. And so did Ward McAllister in his book, Society of As I Have Found It. In 1890, he even described champagne fraps. He's also recommended serving vintage champagne, especially ones that were very old. Uh, it was fashionable at the time to have something that nobody else had. Uh, he preferred the 1874 vintage. And actually, I do have a quote I wanted to read from, I've got Society As I Have Found It. I have a library of very, very old books about cocktails or cocktail-associated things. And he said, it will be well to remember that champagnes are now known to connoisseurs by their vintage. Wines of some vintages do not keep at all. In keeping champagnes, keep only or order kept for you the champagnes of the best vintages. Of course, there is much risk in keeping any champagne, but what all strive for is to possess something that no one else has, that is not purchasable. I mean, in any quantity. And this is now the 1874 champagne. The 1874 vintage is world famous. It was back then. It was one of the best years for champagne ever. Even back in 1888, seven magnums of 1874 vintage of Perrier Jouet Brut Millésime made history at Christie's as the most expensive champagne ever sold at an auction. When Oscar Wilde was in prison, he ordered uh, a case of 1874. He also wrote in importance of being earnest about the 89 Perrier Jouet. In a, in a pint bottle. Back then, especially in England, bottles were in pints and quarts. And of course, this was all sweet champagne. The closest they had to modern champagne was what they had the English taste. Now, 
how did we get from this sweet champagne to the modern taste for this very, very dry brute? Well, first, as I said, champagne was sweet. It was more syrupy. And I'll explain the, the 19th century classifications for champagne. The sweetest was du, which means soft. And then it was the demi-sec, which is the medium dry, and the sec, which is dry. And then they had extra sec, which of course means extra dry. That was 12 to 17 grams per liter uh, of sugar. For the British, that was still kind of sweet. So in 1846, Perry Jouet came out with uh, a champagne that they exported to London that was made without any sugar. It was just made for the English. Uh, only did well there. But like I said, the year 1874 was great for all champagnes. And the 1874 Pomeray Grand Cru Brut was a style that everybody loved. And that was what made Brut really popular. Uh, the designation Brut means raw, meaning, you know, there's because there's no sugar. And the the name for that was actually created for the British two years later in 1876. So today, you know, you think, what what is drier than dry? Well, have to have a whole new thing for it. So they came out with Brut, which is less than 12 grams per sugar. And 95% of champagne sold today is Brut. Drier than that, you have extra Brut. And even drier than that is Brut Nature, which is no sugar added at all. Now, I'm curious, what was it about this year, 1874, that created such beautiful champagnes? Was it a combination of factors in the terroir, the weather, the soil, the drainage? Is that really what it was? From what I've read about it, that's exactly what it was, because it was the same soil, it was the same region, but it was the climate, it was the weather. It was a perfect storm, you could say, of the right amount of sunshine, the right amount of rainwater, you know, the frost coming at just the right time so that all the grapes were at their best. And you, you will have that where from time to time, a certain year will have better wine than the last year. And that's why a lot of champagnes actually are, are blends. They want to have a, a consistent taste. So we talked earlier about how champagne was, was made whether by chance or perhaps not. Can you talk a little bit about how champagne is actually produced today? I'm sure it's much more of a science than it was at that point. Oh, it's absolutely much more of a science because when it was originally started, it was, um, I, I don't necessarily want to say accidental because it was a common occurrence, but it just was by happenstance, I'll say. Now, today's wine is fermented in a tank and then it's blended and bottled with what they call the liqueur de tirage. That's a wine yeast and sugar that gives it the second fermentation in the bottle. And then finally, the dosage, the added sugar is added to make it sweet. And that's how it's been done since champagne has gotten the appellation. But things were different before that. Originally, the second fermentation, uh, the one in the bottle, was a natural result of the weather. It was somewhat random. Sometimes it wouldn't happen. And sometimes the bottles would explode. Around the same time Dom Perignon was working, uh, there was a Benedictine monk in a nearby abbey named Jean Odart. He's the third uh, of the, the monks we're talking about, Perignon, Ruinart, and Odart. He realized that there was a certain amount of yeast and sugar that you could add after the first fermentation that would guarantee the second fermentation in the bottle and you could control it depending on how much you added to it. So that was a way of scientifically starting the second fermentation and having control over it. And Vintners called this 
The English method, probably because the English like their champagne to sparkle. Also, champagne used to be cloudy. And this is because of the second fermentation in the bottle. You have all this yeast. And the dead yeast would collect after this fermentation, uh, which is why the longer champagne is aged, the more yeasty it will taste. And winemakers used to decant the bottles into fresh bottles to try to get rid of some of this cloudiness. But in 1818, Veuve Clicquot, well, Veuve cellar master, a guy named Antoine Muller, a lot of these guys were German, by the way, who were the cellar masters. He invented a way of positioning and rotating the bottles. So the dead yeast, which is known as the lees, would collect in the neck of the bottle and it could be disgorged. They would chill it and get rid of all the yeast. It's a process known today as riddling or rumage. And this revolutionized production. This meant they could uh, sell a lot more. It was done by hand back then, but now most houses do have it automated. So the last process to happen to Champagne was in 1844 when Adolf Jackson from the House of Jackson in Field invented the mousselette. And that's the wire cage that holds the cork onto the bottle. Prior to that, it was held on by twine and people would just have to cut the twine to open it. Now it's got the wire cage that people like to almost like wire or gammy into little chairs and little things. Well, we certainly come a long way from those exploding bottles, don't you think? I really think so. So, Don, there were so many courses and videos and articles and books written about how one tastes and evaluates a glass of wine. I'm curious, is it different when you're evaluating a glass of champagne? Once a glass is poured, how should we evaluate it? Well, you can watch all those videos and they'll tell you specifically what to watch for as far as the, the clarity, the color, the bubbles, everything like that. But I, I do it a little differently. I do evaluate champagne the same way I would evaluate any glass of wine. For me, primarily, it's the glass. I look at the glass. Uh, there have always been debates about the merits of flutes over coupes. And now a lot of places are recommending you serve champagne in a white wine glass. But the main thing is that the glass have a stem. You don't want your hands to warm it because temperature is very important. This goes for champagne or, or any wine. For champagne, you want to have it chilled. Not freezing, but warm champagne just doesn't really taste very good. And the mouthfeel is important. Smaller bubbles don't necessarily mean better. A lot of people think it, bubble size is really important. But if you like big bubbles, find a champagne that has big bubbles. It's going to taste great for you. And by the way, if you're having fun at a celebration, pop the cork, spill champagne everywhere. But if you're at home at a nice little party and you want to keep things quiet, I recommend don't pop the cork because you're going to lose the CO2. It's not going to be quite as bubbly and you can unwind the wire. Actually, you can do it under the foil. You can take unwind the wire, take the whole foil, cork, and wire off altogether. Now, the experts do say to look at the color and the clarity of the glass, swirl it around for the nose of the fruit, sense of minerals, and what they call a brioche or biscuit. As a bartender and a server of champagne, we were taught to speak of champagne in terms of brioche and biscuit, mainly because they didn't think the customers would like the term yeasty. <laughs> Probably not. But the main way to evaluate champagne, I believe, is taste. The second and third ways are taste and taste. Taste is everything. Now, of course, you don't want cloudy champagne, but everybody's palate is different. My wife has taste for champagne that are very different from mine. There's some that I like that she think tastes like 
burnt coffee. So drink what you like to drink, the brand, the vintage, the age, those things don't really matter. The best champagne you can have, and this is what I learned at Flute, Hervé, our, our boss taught me this, the best champagne you have is the one that you enjoy the most. Oh, and like I said, it is like a wine. Uh, so it's generally already aged when you buy it. It's meant to be drunk soon after you buy it. Keeping it in a cellar for decades isn't going to make it any better. It's going to make it rare. That's about it. Now, you talked a few minutes ago about champagne glasses and the flute versus the coupe. Champagne glasses certainly seem to be one of the world's favorite special occasion gifts for weddings, etc. But can you talk about how the shape has really changed over time? And is there really anything to that story that the coupe was actually developed and created in the shape of Marie Antoinette's breasts? Is there anything to that? Oh, oh yes. Marie Antoinette's breast. Or... Madame Pompadour's breast, or was it uh, Empress Josephine's breast? Uh, you know, there's stories about everybody's you know, breast. That's the legend. But the, the coupe, or, or the saucer it's sometimes called, was invented about a century before um, Marie Antoinette was alive. And champagne was drunk in coupes and regular wine glasses and, and goblets. You can see that from paintings and advertisements from the period and you know, advertising posters of the day. Uh, one thing that was different was Victorian glassware tended to be a lot thicker than it is today. And one of the reasons for that is they like to have it engraved. And it wasn't until the Edwardian area that that style became a little less popular and glasses, all glassware became much thinner. Now, the flute, though, goes back to the 1700s. The flute goes back to the 18th century, although at the time it had straighter sides, it was more like a, a, a stemmed pilsner glass, like a beer glass, which makes sense because a lot of people were drinking beer and cider at the time. The modern flute didn't really replace the coupe until about the 1950s when people thought it was better for the bubbles, it would keep them more contained. But today, a lot of experts just recommend drinking champagne in a white wine glass. Now, as we sort of wind down here, I want to talk a little bit about those other sparkling wines that you mentioned uh, right at the top, Prosecco from Italy, Cremant from other regions of France, Cava in Spain. Can you talk a little bit about those and how they're different from traditional champagne? And we certainly shouldn't think of them as better or worse, but individual in their own right. How do we, how do we assess those? Well, I'm going to take you on, on a little bit of a journey here because uh, – Everyone knows Prosecco and, and Asti and Cava, great, wonderful white wine, sparkling wines that have also a wide range of flavor, just like champagne does. So I would say you assess it just as we talked about champagne. There's Cava's that you might not like. There's Cava's that you might love. Same with Prosecco and Asti. But there's also sparkling wines that most people don't know about. Like I said, Prosecco and Asti, of course, are Italian sparkling wines, but so is Lambrusco. Lambrusco is a red sparkling wine from Italy, and it's made by what they call the, the Charmat method, where it's, it's not a second fermentation. It's in a pressurized tank, and it can be dry to sweet. could have as many kinds of Lambrusco as there are champagne. There's also Catawba, which is an American grape, and it was the most popular grape in the United States in the 1800s. Sparkling Catawba from Ohio was exported all over the world, and it's still made by some vintners. Also, there was Cold Duck, which was a sparkling rosé made from German red wine and champagne. Andre is still making a sparkling red wine called Cold Duck. And at some restaurants, you might find something like Wycliffe Brut. It's an affordable American champagne. 
And yeah, you heard me. I said it's an American champagne. It's a California champagne. Now, sparkling wine has been made in California since the 1860s when American sparkling wine was called domestic champagne. And if you remember, I said in the 1819 Treaty of Versailles, uh, it protected the appellation of champagne, reserving it for only sparkling wine that was made in France in the Champagne region under the Champagne method. Well, the United States Senate never ratified that treaty. So in the European Union and many other countries, the name Champagne is legally protected. But the U.S. didn't agree to the appellation until the early 2000s. So since 2006, new brands of sparkling wine cannot be called Champagne. But those that use the term on labels prior to that time can still use it, as long as it's accompanied by the wine's region. So Andre, Cooks, Corbell, and Wycliffe are all California Champagnes. But I think the most interesting and exciting sparkling wines are ones that are going to come out in Great Britain. The southern shores have very similar limestone and chalk to the Champagne region of France. And the weather has always been too cold, though, to make good sparkling wine there. Well, climate change is now affecting everything, and that weather is moving north to England. And French Champagne House Tattinger even bought farmland in Kent to plant vines. Their first bottle is going to be ready next year. I think that's really going to surprise people. When you and I were talking the other day, that really, really surprised me. So off to London for our great new new champagnes, right? Absolutely. Don, you have really helped us all understand the intricacies of uh, champagne so much better today than I, than I certainly ever knew. Thank you so much for coming back to the Gilded Gentleman to share all your expertise. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'd, I'd love to come back. And I, I can't wait to listen to all your other podcasts, too. Well, thank you. And we're just going to have to find something else to come back and talk about, which I'm not worried at all about that. We'll certainly find that. And to listeners, find Don and the Green Fairy Society. Follow him on Instagram at, at Green Fairy Society and online at Green Fairy NYC. And to you all, I wish you the happiest and most effervescent of New Year's celebrations. And I so look forward to joining you in the new year in just two weeks for a whole new second season of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this show was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. I invite listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly helps me with the costs of studio rental, research, and production costs, and it allows me to create and write the show. In addition, patrons have access to bonus content and special invitations to join all my gilded goings-on. I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold?